I'd like to speak to you today about our gospel lesson. And one of the difficulties in speaking on a gospel lesson like this is that it's one of the most famous gospel lessons in the Bible. Uh, we listen to it, I'm sure, many times about how blessed are the poor and blessed are the hungry. Uh, and so much so, it's known as a passage called the Beatitudes, uh, which is, uh, comes from Latin, which means blessing. But I'd like to suggest to you that today, what's most interesting about this passage is how frankly strange it is. Not only how strange it is, but how strange it is that the strangeness doesn't prevent us from loving this passage. I'd like to speak to you today about how strange this passage is, why it's important to embrace that strangeness, and also to tell you a little bit about what it means to live out in the way that Jesus commands us to live in this strange passage called the Beatitudes. But just before I do, I'd like to give a little bit of a diversion, because many of you will know of this passage, but you will have been listening today and thinking, wait, there's a few parts missing, right? Because it's actually a passage that is mirrored in Matthew's Gospel. And so I'd like to spend a little time talking to you about those differences and then get into the meat of the matter about the strangeness of this Gospel and why it should really matter to us and how it affects our daily life. What you may notice if you compare Matthew's Gospel to Luke's Gospel is there's some really key differences. For one thing, in Luke's Gospel, when he speaks in these uh, terms, we're told Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with the great crowd of his disciples. However, if we're in Matthew, he doesn't say that he went down to a, a, a level place. Instead, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount because we're told not that he comes down to a level place. I'm just get my page here. Da, 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 da. Not because he went down to a level place. It says in Matthew 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain and sat down and the disciples came to him. Matthew's taken from the Sermon on the Mount. Luke is taken from what's known as the Sermon on the Plain. From there, Matthew says some slightly different things. When Jesus speaks about what it means to be blessed, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he say in Luke? Luke drops the spirit part. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I won't go through every difference, but just to point out the fact that differences sometimes exist in Gospels where they tell very similar stories, or perhaps the same story. Sometimes it's because it's the same story told from a different perspective. Matthew's Gospel is uh, probably written to Jewish people. Luke's Gospel is probably written to Gentile people. Different audience means that they uh, put an emphasis on different things. But I also want you to consider that part of the difference is not just because the Gospel writers write in a different way, but also because Jesus spoke in different ways in different occasions. You know, uh, one of the things that sometimes happens to me is that sometimes I get asked to preach at other venues. So it's not just here that I have my one gig at speaking. Sometimes I get asked to other places. And uh, just recently, for example, uh, a few months ago, we went to a conference. I went with Court and with Judy and with Ed uh, to a conference called Journey to Baptismal Living. And we did some different liturgy and, and learned some different things. And I was asked to preach. So what did I do? I didn't come up with a brand new sermon. I didn't have the time to do it because I had to preach on the Sunday morning right afterwards. So what did I do? I polished off a sermon that I had preached a few years ago right here. It was the Easter Vigil sermon, and I changed it a little bit. I adapted it a bit for the audience that was there. But it was basically the same sermon adapted a bit to context. I'd like to suggest that part of the reason why you listen to this and notice the differences is probably because Jesus is speaking to a different audience in a different circumstance. He adapts it slightly. And we're not entirely sure, but I'd like to suggest that maybe part of the reason is actually told at the beginning of Luke's uh, passage here. Listen to what uh, it says. It says in verse 17, Jesus came down with them, 
stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from Judea, Jerusalem, the coast of Tyre, and Sidon. And what's interesting about all these places, these were relatively wealthy places compared to the poverty of Galilee. Tyre and Sidon were famously wealthy as trading centers, and Jerusalem is the seat of power. Unlike other places where Jesus is speaking to those who are actually poor, this is probably a situation where he's speaking to many people who are actually quite rich. It may be very well that he emphasizes literal poverty as opposed to spiritual poverty because he's speaking to people who are wealthy and need to hear the woes at the end of this passage. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are happy. Woe to you who are laughing and that sort of thing. So just to keep that in mind, as you're looking at passages and you read through the Bible, sometimes there's differences there, not because one is better than the other, but because they're spoken to a different audience. And of course, the gospel writers maybe emphasize one part or another. So as that introduction is out of the way, let's get into the meat of the matter. I mentioned to you how strange this passage is. And I wonder if you've really noticed and paid attention to the Beatitudes. And just to make you understand why this is strange, think about the sorts of things that you think you would really love to have. What would you like to strive for in life? Well, here's a little uh, thing that I'd like to strive for. I would like to strive to be rich. That's pretty awesome. I would strive to be full instead of hungry. That would be pretty great. I would strive to be laughing and happy. Isn't happiness a wonderful thing in life? And you know what I would love? For everybody to think I am fantastic and speak well of me. Isn't that a, a group of things that you could sort of say, these are my life goals, isn't that fantastic? Isn't it odd then that when I say, I want to be rich, I want to be full, I want to be happy, I want to be spoken well of, and I turn to Jesus and say, could you please help me attain these wonderful life goals? Jesus says instead, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who are laughing. Woe to you when all speak well of you. That kind of sucks. Isn't that odd? Well, then what should I do, Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what's really fantastic and blessed and will make you truly joyful. If you're poor, if you're hungry, if you're weeping, and if, here's the kicker, people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and defame you. That doesn't sound like one of the daily affirmations that you're supposed to get on your regular podcast, right? Here, Lord, please help me to be more poor and more hungry and more reviled. How strange it is that Jesus, in fact, says that blessings come out of the places we want to avoid and woes come out of the places that we most want to embrace. As I get into the meat of it a little bit later and talk to you about what some of these things mean, I just want you to dwell for a moment about how strange it is that Jesus is saying that the things people strive for most in life are, in fact, things that might not bring them what it is that they really want. And the things they most strive to avoid may in fact be the key to a happier, more fulfilling, and completed life. I've mentioned this story before, I think, here, but uh, I was often struck by the, the, the life story of an author named Truman Capote. Many of you will know him. I, I remember as a teenager, uh, I read Breakfast at Tiffany's, and it was a short story, but it was just so charming and well-written. And I read through many of his other short stories. But where he became most famous and where he sort of came back into public consciousness was a few years ago, a movie uh, called, I think it was called Truman, or was it called Capote? One or the other. I should have Googled that before the sermon. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, about uh, Truman Capote during the time where he writes an important book, his most famous book called In Cold Blood. This caused a sensation because he decided to write about a cold-blooded murder that happened in a small town in Kansas. And, and a whole family was killed. And so he writes about the murder. He writes about the apprehension of those who did the murdering. And he follows it through until both of the murderers were eventually uh, executed 
uh, as a part of their sentence for having done these things. He called it a nonfiction novel, and what he meant by that is that he wrote it in a dramatic way that sounded like a novel, but it was actually true events. Truman Capote uh, became famous because he started, while he was still halfway through the book, doing public readings about the first chapters. The buzz was incredible. It catapulted him to the top of the literary world. And here he finishes in cold blood. He makes a great deal of money, and he becomes world famous. Um, many of you will know uh, of the name Catherine Graham, who is the uh, owner at the Washington Post and became a real great socialite uh, and was really famous for that reason. And she really elevated him and helped him bankroll what became known as the black and white ball. And he would be the person who invited literary figures and artists and everybody who was everybody wanted to be invited to this thing. He became the absolute top of the literary world. But here's what's really interesting. That was the last novel he ever wrote. From there, he wrote a few magazine articles and a few other things, but eventually the man became uh, disliked. He descended into alcoholism and depression. He did the public talking circuit until eventually he showed up one too many times drunk to these things and people stopped asking him to be on television. He eventually uh, died having not finished a novel he'd been working on for a good 20 years and it was called Answered Prayers. And I always called that was because at the very beginning of the novel was an epigraph from St. Teresa of Avila. That epigraph is a quote that says, more tears are shed by the t uh, prayers that God answers and by the prayers God doesn't answer. What it really was was sort of almost a lament about this world that he'd been catapulted into amongst the champagne and caviar set and found that instead of him being happy, the thing he had longed for the most in life actually destroyed him. He could never write a good work again, and he never finished this. And uh, that last work that was published posthumously was not really well received. Here's a man who got exactly what he wanted and found that what he wanted is in fact not something that gave him much joy. I'd like to suggest to you that one of the prime things the Beatitudes does for us is it makes us ask ourselves, are the things we're striving for really the things that bring us real satisfaction? Are we willing to come to Jesus and ask him the most important question of all, which is not, Jesus, can you help me achieve my life goals? But Jesus, can you help me to understand what I should be striving for? And so often when we come to Jesus, what scares us is that he might very well say, this thing you're really looking for, the reputation you want for everybody to say good of you, the, the big bank account that you want so much, the promotion at work you want so much, the romantic relationship you want so much, this success or whatever it is, this thing you want so much is not going to make you a better person. It is not going to make you a more fulfilled person. It's not going to mean that when you lie down in your last breath in bed and die that you are able to say, I lived a good life. So often when Jesus calls us, he challenges us because he says, are you really willing to follow my way and my path? Because I'm asking you, do you trust me enough to believe that the path I set out for you is actually the path that is best for you? And it is so hard for us sometimes to believe it. Here's the challenge the Beatitudes gives to us. It challenges us to ask whether we are really striving for the things that are right and do we trust Jesus enough to actually shape our desires so that we can start wanting and loving the right things. And that is not an easy thing to do, because it may mean giving up things that we really, really value. Let's not forget that when Jesus speaks to disciples coming to him, he doesn't simply say, come and follow me. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that is not denying your true self. It is denying uh, what you sometimes falsely think is your true self. Jesus says, come and follow me and take up my cross because it requires a discipline to come to Jesus and say, shape 
my desire so that I strive for the things that are right. So that's the first thing to understand about the Beatitudes. Here's the second thing I want to speak to you about. As we look through these Beatitudes, it's really, really important for us to understand who it is Jesus is speaking to. Did you pay attention to the framing of this story about how it comes about that Jesus says these things? So uh, listen again to verse 17 as he begins this passage, this Sermon on the Plain. Jesus came down with them, stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him, to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. And then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Do you notice what it is that he's speaking to? Who it is that he's speaking to? He's got great crowds, but Luke makes it clear that among the crowds is also a smaller crowd of disciples. In other words, it's not just the twelve, the famous disciples, but disciple really means to say, I trust that you are my teacher. They have already decided they want to follow Jesus, that they understand his way is the best way for them. They want to go where Jesus goes, and he's speaking to those who have decided to follow him, not specifically or specifically to them and not just as a general speaking to everybody. It's really helpful for us to understand that because when he speaks about poverty and hunger, I think it's really easy for us to say, Jesus, you just don't get it. I mean, poverty stinks. It does. He's not saying poverty is a good in and of itself. In fact, so often, what are we told? Bless the poor. Give a glass of water to those who are thirsty. Feed uh, those who are hungry and clothe those who are naked. Jesus is not saying strive for poverty. I think instead what he's speaking about is to say, as he says here when he talks about uh, being reviled. He doesn't just say it's great to be reviled and despised. He says those who defame you on account of the Son of Man. And I think that Framing that entire blessing is actually to say those who are poor for my sake, those who are hungry for my sake, those who are weeping for my sake, those who are reviled for my sake. He's speaking to disciples whose poverty comes about because of their following Jesus, and not just because poverty in and of itself is a good thing. Jesus often speaks of a challenge to people when they come to be disciples of his, partly because he knows that it will cost them a great deal. One time when somebody comes to Jesus uh, and they say, let me follow you, Jesus says, you know, uh, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you realizing that when you follow me, it may very well mean that you live in poverty? You may very well be a person who's excluded. Matthew is very clear, and he's speaking to Jewish Christians in particular to say Jesus warns them they may put you out of their synagogue, and that those who uh, uh, revile and attack you think they're doing something good for God. You may be making a choice in following Jesus that leaves you poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled. So that helps us understand why these words speak to us, even though we live in such physical wealth here in modern-day Canada. Is that the poverty that Jesus points to is a poverty that doesn't simply make you rely on the mercy of others. That's what poverty does. Often, sadly, it is so grinding and terrible because the mercy that people should give to you are things they don't give to you. Think about how often the poor are reviled. Uh, they should go off and get a job or they should uh, stop drinking or doing whatever. Sometimes they're given with honesty, a desire to help, but so often it's the opposite. It's an excuse that prevents us from giving real mercy to people who are desperate. What is it we do when we're poor for Christ? It means in the same way that we rely on the mercy of others when we're physically poor, when you are poor for the cause of Christ, you are forced to rely on the mercies of our God. 
And that is a hard thing to admit when you're wealthy. When you're poor for the cause of Christ, you know that every scrap of food you get, every piece of clothing across your back, every moment of warmth and shelter you receive comes because it's a gift from a loving God. When you're wealthy, it's very hard to believe this. Conceptually, we all know it. We know everything comes from God. But of course, why do we strive for wealth with such desire? Because it, for us, represents security. If we have these things, then frankly, we don't need to rely on anyone. But what does Jesus say in one of his most famous parables? He tells the story of a great man who builds a great storehouse and says, I'm so rich and so full, I'll build another storehouse to create even more security for myself. And Jesus says, you fool, this very night, your life, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. And where will all your riches be then? Of course, we all know this. It strikes me that the great challenge gives us, gives us and says, why are you are blessed when you're poor for my sake? It's a challenge for us who are wealthy to say, how can we integrate things into our daily lives that remind us that what we enjoy on a daily basis is a gift from a loving God and not simply the fruit of our own labors? Here's a simple thing that I'm sure many of us do without thinking much. But do you take the time to actually thank God in more than a rote fashion whenever you eat? When I was at the retreat I was at just recently, it was a wonderful time that I could be just silent. It's such a great thing to be able to go through an entire day and only have like two conversations. That can be something that probably 20 years worth of doing that would be tough, but I'll tell you three days worth of that is pretty fantastic. But here's one of the things that the monks always do when they gather and they have lunch. After they eat lunch, they do a, a grace afterwards, and this is, it goes something like this. It says, Bless with eternal life, O Lord, all those who for your sake have shown generosity to our community. These monks know that they aren't self-sustaining. Yes, they raise sheep and they do have different things, but what they rely on is the generosity of people who care about what they do and give them money. They realize that everything they have comes from the hand of God. Wouldn't it be an interesting thing if whenever we eat, whenever we receive something that sustains us and we receive our daily bread, we start reminding ourselves by honestly taking a few moments to thank God and say, God, thank you because I know this has come from you. What if we extended that to things beyond us? What if you extended it to each time you throw on a shirt in the morning or each time you brush your teeth or each time you do small things throughout the day to get into the habit of saying, God, thank you for this because I know it ultimately comes from you. Remember that those who are poor are blessed not because poverty is great, but because poverty helps us remember where our true blessings come from. The next two are interesting as well because Jesus says these things. And verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. First, it's a forward orientation. He doesn't say you're going to be laughing all the day long, all the time. He says these are things that will happen. But what these two things have in common? These two things have in common a deep dissatisfaction with the current state of affairs. Think about when you weep because you've lost somebody you love. You're so dissatisfied with the current state of affairs because even though you know all of us die, there's something tragic and unfair about it all. You've poured out your love for somebody. You've had a relationship so deep that it feels that it should be eternal, and this person is gone. Or think about hunger. You need a basic thing, and you're starving because you cannot get what you need to survive. This is not fair. The sense of injustice comes about. We know that. We know that there's a deep sense in which in this life there is many things that are simply unjust and cannot be born. 
Jesus says there is a blessed kind of dissatisfaction that comes about when I follow Jesus. You know, one of the things that you look to when you look to Jesus is you look to someone who is an example of what perfect mercy looks like, of perfect generosity looks like, of perfect forgiveness, of perfect holiness. You look to Jesus and then you look back at the world and you realize that what Jesus proclaims in the kingdom about love for those who are your enemies, blessing for those who curse you, feeding those who are hungry and blessing with a glass of water those who are thirsty. You look from the holy ideal to the way the world actually works and it cannot but help help us feel like we are hungering and thirsting for something better. And this is a godly thing. But also to remember that all this makes us hunger and thirst and to act, we hope, in the same way that Christ acts, it is also a reminder to us and a blessing to us that in the end, this world will not be perfected until Christ himself perfects it. How hard it is for many of us when we look in the mirror, let alone looking at the world and the disasters of Syria, we look in the mirror and we think, my gosh, what an unfinished job this is. Jesus, I recognize this thing has gone wrong and that thing has gone wrong and how easy it is for us to be down on ourselves because we're legitimately dissatisfied with the ways that we fall short of God's hopes for us. But what's the hope? What's the blessing? The blessing is to realize that, of course, we're not responsible solely for our own perfection. Instead, what we're responsible to do is to allow Christ to perfect us. Here's a simple thing that has been so helpful to me at times where I've been so down on myself and recognized the satisfaction I rightly have is not to curse myself and beat myself up for failing. It's simply to invite Jesus in to the midst of my failings and ask him to walk with me. You know, there's an interesting uh, show that I've been watching on Netflix. I binged my way through it. It's eight episodes, uh, but it's called Russian Doll. You may have seen that. And it's really an interesting show in lots of different ways. It's sort of like Groundhog Day, if you ever watched that many years ago, except it's Groundhog Day for hipsters. But here's the thing that was really interesting. There's a passage where a man has just discovered that his longtime girlfriend has been unfaithful. He gets drunk and he wants to kill himself. And this friend of his follows him, searches all over the place for him, finds him on the roof, almost ready to do this. And he says, I don't, I don't see any joy in life anymore. And if I, if I don't do this, can you promise me that you're going to be happy? That I'm going to be happy? He said, nobody can make that promise. All I can promise to you is that you won't be alone. Such a moving passage because it said, look, I, I can't promise you something. What I can promise you is that I won't leave you. Here's the wonderful thing about Christ, though. He says, I can't promise you that you won't mourn in this life. You will. I can promise you, however, that in the fullness of time, you will laugh. There will come a time where every tear is wiped away. There will come a time when the sorrow is turned into laughter, where your ashes are turned into garlands. These are promises that the Lord of heaven and earth has made to us. Where is the blessing that comes to us? The blessing is that the Lord of heaven and earth waits to be invited into our lives and says, yes, I see you failing in the way that you treat your kids or your spouse or your, your whatever it is that you're struggling with. Invite me in and I will promise I will be with you even at the times you stumble. If you let me walk with you, you will find that almost by a, a, uh, a thing you can't perceive, the goodness and character of Christ will be infused in you. Blessed are you when you're hungry. Blessed are you when you weep. Because these are times where you invite Christ into your life powerless and find that his presence with you helps you through the times of mourning and points you to the times that laughter and joy will happen. Here's the last and how I'll finish. But being reviled and hated. Thankfully, we don't live in Egypt where our churches are bombed. Thankfully, we don't live in China where the government can throw you into prison for decades because you desire to follow Christ and not simply the government. 
But there are times where, frankly, people won't like us very much. If you live out your faith and you believe in something, sometimes uh, unfairly, sometimes fairly, people are angry at the church and they may take it out on you. But I'll tell you there's something incredibly freeing but knowing it doesn't really matter what other people think of you. How wonderful it is sometimes where I've been down because somebody has torn a strip off of me. And there are times where I turn and I say, Jesus, I feel like crap. People don't like me. I feel like I've been rejected. And Jesus says, well, the most important person in the world hasn't rejected you. And you get up and you start again. And your life is not as destroyed as you think it is. How wonderful it is when you have found yourself dis, uh, distracted or, or, or sad because the world's rejected you and found the maker of heaven and earth who knows you best and knows your deepest and darkest sins has not rejected you. There's a blessing when you follow Christ, when you're reviled for his sake, and you find that in the midst of all of that, he is right there to embrace you, to love you, and say, you are my beloved child, and you I'm well pleased. And to say that even though everybody in the world may hate you, Strive to follow Christ, even though it may bring you poverty, it may bring you hunger, it may bring you mourning, it may bring you rejection from the world, but remember what it does bring you. It brings you Christ, which is the most powerful and impressive and most necessary thing that we can ever have, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.